JJC's work bringing together black and Latino communities for housing and immigrant rights. See you there. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up next is Cover to Cover Open Book. Welcome to this edition of Cover to Cover Open Book, or as um, I say, Frame to Frame. My name is Raina Cowan. I'm here with the film segment that occurs on the the fourth week of of the month, each month. And we're going to talk about two really very interesting and dynamic films that are showing. Uh, second, we will talk about Norwegian filmmaker uh, Joachim Trier, who has this new film entitled Oslo, August 31st, that opens today around the Bay Area. And first, we're going to highlight the San Francisco International Gay Lesbian Film Festival, which is now called Frameline, by talking about one film that I thought uh, was really interesting and stood out, and uh, the director was able to be here for this film. The film is entitled The Invisible Men, and it's a, an Israeli film, and it focuses on uh, an issue that I don't think we've heard about much here, uh, about Palestinian men who are gay, who can't really live in their own country uh, because they're worried about... Uh, being murdered by their family or being injured by their family. Uh, they moved to Israel where they are stateless and are living undocumented, but uh, Israel is more open to having queer people live there. But then there's a way where some part of being franchised in society isn't able to happen, and it's a very dangerous life. To talk about this film is the director, Yariv Moser. This is his third documentary, his first focus on the Lebanese, <laughs> the Lebanon War. Uh, it's an anti-war film. And then he did a film about Eurovision. And this, The Invisible Man, is his third film. Welcome to KPFA. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much. So this is a very interesting film because we meet three different men who are Palestinian, who are living a hidden world in some way or another. And uh, we get to find out about their experience and how they can be themselves, be both gay and Palestinian and and feel important in their lives and feel safe. How did you first wind up connecting with this project? Um, I was always curious to know what is going on um, after the border, you know, uh, in the occupied uh, territories. Um, being gay myself, living in Tel Aviv, living in Israel, where Tel Aviv is like a, a gay mecca. It's a very liberal city. Um, we all feel safe and free with our identity. And um, as in all Israel, there is no connection with the Palestinian people. So I was always curious to know what is the life of gay Palestinians and then I started the research of this film and when I first met the main character of the film Louis and I heard his story it was so compelling and it was um, so shocking that I was uh, immediately I've decided that I'm going to do this film 
So tell us like what his experience was like, what his day-to-day life living in Tel Aviv was like, and his sense of danger at any time. Yeah. Well, the situation for gay Palestinians becomes um, really problematic when someone is being exposed of being gay. Because... Because of the occupation, the territories are isolated and there, no one goes in, no one goes out, especially from in Gaza, for example, but also in the West Bank. So if someone is being exposed of being gay and that means that he he's done, it's like a sin, it's like harming the honor of the family, of the Muslim family. And therefore, the family is going to revenge. And the rumors are going very fast from one to village to another. These are big families, big tribes, and everyone are looking after them. So they must run away. And this is what happened to him. Uh, his father was uh, got some pictures of him having sex with another man. He called him back home saying that he doesn't feel well and he needs to visit him, his father. And then Louis came back home. They tied him with ropes. His father took a knife and he slashed his face, leaving a very ugly scar on his face. And Louis ran away. And from that day, uh, Louis uh, was an illegal Palestinian staying in Tel Aviv, hiding in Tel Aviv because he didn't have documents. And Israel still do not give uh, agree to give uh, asylum to gay Palestinians. And I met Louis after 10 years of living at the same situation. And every time he's being caught, they immediately automatically deport him back to the West Bank. And there he is in danger and he runs away, runs back to Tel Aviv. So on one level, you're documenting uh Louis' experience and uh, someone who had recently just received asylum through the, um, and was going to be heading to a different country. Uh, and what's really interesting to me is you aren't just being an outside observer. Uh, there's like a moment where Louis calls you and says, like, I'm stuck basically in nowhere and you arrange to rescue him. So you be, wind up becoming quite involved in um, all the people that you are interviewing. And... Um, not that documentary is neutral. I mean, I think we've we've proved that long ago that it never really was. But there's this whole other element of advocacy or believing in or protecting, and I wonder about that for you as a director. Um, being a director of a documentary, you need to be well. I think um, you need to have a connection with your characters, a personal connection. You need to be involved in their lives. And um, in my situation, there I couldn't, uh, you know, put a border between the, me and the characters and not to care. It was unhuman. So, um, but in this, at the same time, I'm Israeli. And the Israeli law prohibits uh, giving uh, uh, shelter or uh, um, uh, uh, money or even transportation to, especially to illegal Palestinians. So I was in a very fragile position. I was always afraid to break the law, and at the same time, I I was uh, I I became their closest friend of these guys that I was uh, documenting. So it's um, yeah, it's um, part of. Uh, doing a documentary is dealing with this conflict now through the course of the film uh it's the first fellow abdu is going to be that there's a way that 
I guess there's attorneys in Israel who are helping him seek asylum in another country somewhere far away. And Louis is having to make that decision whether he too wants to seek asylum, which means living the life that he has, although uh, going to some place that he doesn't know, totally different culture. And you're really tracking that in this film and um, the pain and consternation that he has about making that transformation to another to another culture um yeah i saw in this film that eventually i was doing a film about identity they were um forced or brave enough let's say to stand up and say we're gay and we're going to live our life as gay people and we're not afraid of being gay and at the same time they need to abandon their their Palestinian traditional conservative identity and to um to take upon themselves the new Israeli identity only so they could survive so for example they need to wear the star of david uh, so policemen would would not never suspect them of being Palestinian but they would think that they're Israeli so and then they need to abandon the Israeli culture which is somehow near to their uh, Palestinian one and to adapt into this European country that gave them asylum so this um transition of identity was the story the inner story of this uh, film for me this is why I did this film well it, and it's interesting because at the same time there's you know there's so much about conflict between Palestinian and Israeli and uh, and you making a film and the anxiety because as we're watching the film um, at any moment you know Louis gets there's a knock on the door and he is about to potentially be arrested again and everybody's having to negotiate and he's having to sleep on the roof to get away from it all so uh, there's a way that you're being pulled into something at the same time that you're actually trying to create an environment where he's allowed freedom yeah and it's um, you know th this was the thing for Louis that was so hard that at the same time Israelis are helping him personal Israelis like you know um, like me like uh, the lawyers like um, these people that are uh, willing to help and at the same time the authorities are running after him and are not uh, dealing with uh, the problem and are not willing to uh, to help to assist so uh, this was the biggest uh, problem that he had with um, living in Israel well it seems like Abdu the other character is very political in a way and very uh proud of his position of being gay and Louis uh, there's a way where it seems like the more that he has to face potential moving to another country the actually the more insecure he seems to be about about who he is and his identity so they're kind of crossing each other yeah and this was important for me to choose two characters that are uh, in a way um, uh, contradict and they do not uh, agree on anything they do not see the life the uh, same as we are in the gay community you know you have right. so many people and those two just need to cope with the same reality um, and for Louis yeah it was it wasn't um, although it would save him for, save his life it wasn't uh, an easy decision to abandon the Middle East and to um, adapt into a different culture, minus 15 degrees in this European country that accepted him. And did you have that sense of danger while you were making this film, um, not only for your characters that you were filming, but also the fact that you were taking on this issue? Uh, yeah. <laughs> 
I still, uh, in a way, afraid that one of the members of the family will knock at my door and uh, and will have uh, things to say to me. Or for a lot of time, I was afraid that the Israeli government will be uh, uh, against the film in a way. Uh, for me, yeah. So, but it's part of the of the work of doing a film like this. That you're willing to to challenge everything and then actually experience some of the similar things to the people who you're documenting. Yeah, and it's more than that. After being, f- uh, after this uh, problem revealed to me, I-, I felt the responsibility of doing this film. It was like uh, a, a mission is a big word, but you know, it, it, it was deep in my heart to to just show the world what's going on in the Middle East, uh, in, in how these people became the biggest victims of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The Invisible Man, uh, the new film by Yariv Boser, it's playing as part of Frameline Film Festival this coming Saturday at 7 p.m. at the Roxy Theater in San Francisco. Uh, you're going to be there at the screening. If you want more information about Frameline, you can go to their website, frameline.org. And if you're interested in seeing this film in a technicolor, dramatic version from Turkey, um, dealing with almost the same issues but in a different way, um, there's a film called Zeni Dancer. And Zeni is the the Turkish word for queer and it's playing also on Saturday at the Victoria Theater at 1.30 p.m. So two films, very different documentary versus feature, both dealing with similar issues and really dynamic. So I want to thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, now we want to switch hats and talk about another film. Uh, Joachim uh, Trier has a film entitled Oslo, August 31st. It's a Norwegian film that deals with drug addiction. It's a really interesting, dynamic film, and I had a chance to interview him earlier today. Welcome to KPFA. We're here to talk about your film, Oslo, August 31st. And it tells the story of Anders, one day in Anders, somebody who... Uh, in the single day, he's in a drug treatment program. He's had a long history of drug use, and it's clear that he has really impacted his life and his success, going from an intellectual to somebody who's been living in this program. Uh, and playing the main character is Anders Danielson Lee. Uh, so I wanted to talk to the director today, Joachim Trier about this film, Oslo, August 31st. What inspired you to tell the story? I know it's based on a, both a short story loosely and a film loosely, but uh, what compelled you to do that now? It was a situation where um, I had read this old French novel from 1930 called Le, Le Feu and the paradox was that that we were looking for a story, my co-writer and I, Eskil Fucht, um, we were looking for a story that would somehow relate to some sort of contemporary issues and themes that we were curious to explore. And this interesting thing about this, sort of the timelessness of this sort of classic tale of a man who walks around and, uh, meeting all acquaintances in a day, um, trying to ask fundamental questions about sort of where do I come from, where am I going, very sort of basic human existential questions. We thought that it was kind of interesting to put that story into a modern-day context in Oslo with this sort of hip, young, handsome guy 
who has had some, he's parted too much and he's sort of lost his way and he's trying to figure out sort of, is there a way forward and how do I want to live my life? So that sounds all maybe sort of quite sort of serious, but we're trying to do something that also captures, in a way, sort of the beauty of the last day of summer in a city like Oslo, uh, and sort of, an, I don't know, explore a social environment uh, of, of various characters. Well, it's interesting. We meet him first. Uh, he just sort of had some kind of one-night stand with somebody he doesn't know in a motel, and then goes and tries to sort of half-heartedly kill himself by putting stones in his pocket and going into the river. So you're introduced to a character that initially uh, you think, why will I care about this person? Um, and what I think that you are able to do that is astounding to me is that there is never this moment where Anders uh, is one one part. Like, he isn't just always unlikable. There's always something questioning. Or he isn't always just clueless. There's some way where he's brittle or fragile. Like, that there's always a range that you're able to hold on to. And I'm wondering how you talk to him about this part to try to get him to be able to encompass all those elements. I think it, it has very much to do with who Anders Danielsen Lee is as a person and as an actor. Um, we knew that this story mustn't become static. You know, it mustn't be just about a depressed person walking around. That would be uninteresting. We needed to show a, a complex range of emotions and, and to show an, an, a, sort of a vulnerability of this character, even though he kind of puts up a tough front sometimes when he meets other other people in his life, we actually more and more understand how lost and vulnerable he is. Um, but the thing is, Anders Donaldson Lee, as a person outside of this film, is not really a trained actor. He's a doctor in real life, and he's a musician, and he's written a book, and he's this kind of modern-day Renaissance man, very impressive. Uh, and he, he's, he's this really multi-talented guy. So when I approached him for this part, I said... Imagine, you know, this is a film about a character who has a lot of talents and a lot of options and he hasn't been able to fulfill any of it. And what is he left with? And I think Anders as an actor was able to sort of transpose or identify a a, a sort of alternative version of himself into that part. Um, And through that, I think he, he, he had a very interesting and complex approach to this character. But I think it was basically about trying to identify some sort of human aspect of the character that he could, could could sort of base it on that he had in himself as an actor. Well, it's so interesting that he isn't an actor. I don't know if this would be an advantage or a disadvantage. I mean, clearly it works well. But, um, for example, he goes and he meets people from his past who both may be on one level... Um, some of them idealize the free life that he had with them before... There's a way that he has both a new knowledge, like he's seeing the situation in a different way. He's also pulled into the situation. And the fact is that he isn't integrated enough. So instead of feeling like he understands something, it's like he kind of shatters or gets depressed. And all of that is shown with just so uh, few amount of words and and uh, and emotion. So... Uh, Getting him to be able to do that seems uh, quite surprising. Yeah, well, I think 
I think there was something we were interested in uh, exploring with it, with this character, uh, which is how we, you know, the environment that he, he that he's in in the film, the, the the types of friends that he's got. A lot of them are very resourceful and really uh, quite successful people. Um, and I think to explore this specific type of shame that the character is experiencing. Um, we we were trying to figure out ways to to show how how people avoid talking about what they really <laughs> what's really going on. I, I find interesting film dialogue always to be diverging from the exact things that are going on, and to to, to but at the same time showing what's going on emotionally with the characters. You know that's sort of the game of making interesting film dialogue. I find so. I think um, Anders very much as an actor understands how you need to counter and sometimes play against the obvious emotions of a scene and thereby creating something hopefully more intriguing and complex. Um, but uh, no, but I mean, it's, it's a pleasure. I, I worked with Anders before you see as well in a film called Reprise that we did uh, a few years ago together. He played one of the two leads there. And um, and I just find that there's something, you know, interesting about someone who understands acting but also goes out and has a life in between the movies and has experiences that he can sort of draw on when he plays. Well, it is interesting. Now, the film itself, there's something quite brave about it because with each of these interactions that he has with all these different people, uh, you realize how little they actually know him, how little he knows himself, uh, and how over the course of the film, we don't know him. He, he's more of an enigma as time goes on rather than he was at the beginning. And that seems kind of counter to... Uh, some kind of film strategy where the idea is over time you're really getting to know a character better so that even if the people around him don't know him, you know him. So uh, what made you uh, kind of push that angle? I guess I'm very interested in uh, character, exploring characters. And I find in real life as well that when you get closer to someone, you might understand a lot about them, but there is always something mysterious, even to ourselves, about sometimes the choices we make or or, or how we live our lives. Um, and I think that's a more honest way of portraying people than to have all the answers to make it dramatically resolve itself. But having said that, I think it's also dramatically interesting just out of a sort of a mystery suspense mechanism sometimes. Um, I mean, I know this is a very strange comparison, but in a strange way, you know, if you look at uh, a film like uh, North by Northwest by Hitchcock or, you know, films that take place in a day where there's a lot of, a lot, uh, a lot at stake. Um, that's kind of an interesting dramatic structure of a story. And even though this one is certainly not about, um, it doesn't have a similar plot at all to the Hitchcock film, there's just something very filmic about, uh, the suspense of will this character live or die and the very tight framework of, 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 of being with that character very close in, in 24 hours. So we thought that we also need to play on the mystery and the discovery and then unexpectedness of his human behavior, just also for dramatic reasons, to make it more interesting. So uh, did you shoot the film in sequence? 
Uh, no, we didn't actually, but uh, we were. I'm very, very careful about how I structure my shoot in regards to the emotional experiences of the actors, so that we don't push too many scenes with different emotions in one day and so forth. But, but no, we we weren't able to shoot it in in sequence. And did you know how the film was going to end? Certainly, yes. <laughs> the ending was very clear. <laughs> that's uh, that's uh, that that was there all along. I don't want to say too much for the audience that's going to experience the film, but it certainly was. And but the thing was also to explore a city. You know, I I grew up. Um, I was actually a, a skateboarder for a while. I was Norwegian champion of skateboard when I was <laughs> in my teens. I can brag about it now since I can't do it anymore at all uh, but I, I grew up in a quite a mixed environment of you know punk and hip-hop music and skateboard and I found that a lot of my friends went in very different directions after we stopped skateboarding some became um, some became lawyers you know or musicians others uh, had drug or addiction issues people went in very radically different directions and and so this is this environment that I'm showing in the film um, is very much also trying to show that sort of cultural complexity of a city like Oslo. Um, that was important to me. Right. Well, it's, you know, certainly he starts off as an intellectual who I guess on one level is both engaged with the thinking of the city, but also removed. And then maybe through his partying, he's more involved in it. And then he becomes somebody who is, um, I don't know, there's something like... Be, the seedy or the rat-like quality of somebody who's a drug addict who um, there's something always there that might compel them to lose what they've had. Yeah, it's true. It's a, this is a story about a very self-destructive human being. Uh, and it's we're trying to explore it not through the cliche, here's a drug addict and he's a victim of society type story that we've seen so many times before. I'm interested in someone who's got a what I would call a self-destructive integrity. He has such high ideals about how he should be and how things should be to be, have any value that it's almost impossible to live up to those ideals. And this creates a type of cynicism on one level and also a coping mechanism that we see in the film, which is tremendously sad in a way. I mean, self-destructiveness is something, you know, that, that I think everyone has an aspect of at some stage in their life. But in this case, it's it's taken a very, very bad turn with him. But it, I hope I also show in the film that there is hope, there is coincidence, there, there are, life is, is complex. I'm also, you know, asking just questions about these things. I don't believe as a storyteller that I got all the answers. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of asking questions also about people I've known in my life that have been mysteries to, to me, uh, things that I, with the camera and with actors and with my crew, you know, try to try to ask questions about and to hopefully something that people can identify with and, and walk out of the movie theater and keep talking about, you know, rather than to feel that I'm trying to give them all the answers. We're speaking with Joachim Trier and his new film, Oslo, August 31st, opens today at a variety of uh, venues throughout the Bay Area. Um, and I think that that's what you did, is that you created um, something that was both beautiful, compelling, tragic, and there was a lot of questioning that was happening about who the characters were, uh, who was drawn to who, how come nobody could really see who anybody is, and how could that all happen on a very glorious hot day in Oslo. Uh, so I want to thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thank you very much for having me. Okay. Uh, once again, Joachim Trier's film, Oslo, August 31st. And this film um, opens today at the Rialto Elmwood in Berkeley, at the Rafael Film Center in San Rafael, and the Embarcadero Theater in San Francisco. It's in Nor- Norwegian with English subtitles. And also The Invisible Man, which I had interviewed Yariv Moser, that plays tomorrow, Saturday, uh, at in the evening. And if you want more information, you can go to frameline.org. Frameline Film Festival runs through Sunday uh, in San Francisco and this evening also in Berkeley. And that number, once again, it's frameline.org. So that about winds it up for today's show. I want to thank you for listening. I'll be back the last uh, last Friday in July. I want to thank the board op, Erica Bridgman. My name is Raina Cowan, and I will... See you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. years now, Chris Hedges has been clearly stating a wide range of exceptionally disturbing truths. His fierce courage, his refusal to look away, and his unwavering integrity establish him as one of the few reliable, if exceptionally grim, moral voices of our times. Hedges' new book, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, with graphics by Joe Sacco, reveals the otherwise undisclosed results of rampant capitalism throughout much of this land and what the Occupy movement might do to change things. On Tuesday, June 26th at 7.30, Hedges and Brian Edwards Teekert will be at King Middle School, 1781 Rose Street in Berkeley. There's free parking and wheelchair access. Advanced tickets are 12 bucks at supportive bookstores or through brownpapertickets.com for this KPFA benefit. Find full information on kpfa.org. For Chris Hedges, June 26th, Days of Destruction, 